Well, let's go ahead and start. Uh, others, if they come in, will just have to be rude and walk in front of us. <laughs> um, but again, uh, this is uh, the final uh, lesson or uh, class on the Holy Spirit. And of course, we could do a lot, 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 lot more than what we've been able to do. But uh, I want to try to do some uh, theological reflection on what we looked at last time. But I want to review some of what I uh, covered uh, when looking at the scriptures. In fact, I'll go back and look at some more scriptures uh, that will be new for today. But if you remember, I started off by talking about a controversy that erupted in the second and third century called the the Pneumomachians, and that is these were the people who denied, come in, the Holy Spirit. And uh, it was a fairly significant movement. Uh, they recognized that there was a spirit, but they didn't recognize it as being holy, that is being of divine, part of the Trinitarian, the triune God. And uh, they felt like the scriptures did not support the notion that the Holy Spirit was divine. Uh, the, and that theologically, they didn't think it made much sense to say that there was another person to the Godhead, that Father and Son were enough. We didn't need a spirit to be part of the Godhead. Well, it didn't take long before there was a lot of opposition to that, thinking that, well, they have mis misconstrued, they have not ra accurately interpreted the Bible by denying the deity to the Holy Spirit. And also, theologically, it is important to recognize that uh, the that that God is not only Father and Son, but Holy Spirit as well. And so, the early church then, in the Council of Constantinople, if you remember that, added to what the Council of Nicaea said about the Holy Spirit. The Council of Nicaea in 325 just said, we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's all that it said. And that was okay for the, for the uh, Pneumonwakians. That is, they believed in the Holy Spirit, but they just didn't believe it was God. And at the in, in 381, at the Council of Constantinople, they went on and added to it, you know, of God, of the Son, and so on, claiming the Holy Spirit then to be divine. Okay, we looked at the very beginning uh, in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is mentioned, that the Spirit hovered over the waters, and then we moved into the New Testament where the Holy Spirit overshadows, come in, uh, Mary and, and Christ is born, just as the creation of the universe is is miraculous by the work of the Holy Spirit, the creation of Christ is in the same. That is the same Spirit creating the world, creating the Redeemer of the world. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures that talk about this creative aspect of, of the Holy Spirit is found in Psalm 104, verse 30. In fact, Psalm 104 is one of the great Psalms, well, one of the great passages in all the scripture, talking about God's intimacy, familiarity, involvement with all inorganic and organic life. But in verse 30, it talks about how the Spirit makes everything alive. Everything is made alive by the presence of the Holy Spirit. It would be almost like this. That is, if the Spirit weren't with us, we would deteriorate. Like, like I'm, I'm, you know, every year I'm getting you know, more aches and pains, and if I live long enough, I'll just kind of deteriorate. Uh, and, and that's life. That's the, that's the nature of our organic existence. Well, in a sense, my health keeps me alive. I'm able to stand erect and so on. I have to have energy to stay alive, to keep health. If I just quit eating, quit exercising, all that, then I would you know, quickly deteriorate. Well, every moment is kept alive, kept form, kept energy, kept purpose by the presence of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, we are participating. We are in the presence of the Holy Spirit 
every minute of our life in that God is constantly recreating the world, keeping it from deteriorating into nothingness, giving it form, giving it purpose, uh, we then are participating in that creative act of the Holy Spirit. Then we also saw that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. He speaks through the apostles as well. When we receive the prophetic words, when we receive the words of Scripture, we're receiving the words from the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit speaks to us, through the prophets and the apostles as well. Uh, we also saw that the Holy Spirit works through the ministry of the church. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the cause for the church. The church exists not beside but in the Holy Spirit. Because at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the church is born. And the Holy Spirit endows the church with gifts, from being apostle, to being a prophet, to being a healer, to being a leader, a giver. All these are the presence of the work of the Holy Spirit. So whenever you exercise your gift that edifies the church, it is the Holy Spirit's presence in that act. Sometimes we want to just reduce what we do to our own capabilities. You know, we want to sort of anthropomorphize the Holy Spirit. That is, if it were left up to me, I mean, excuse me, I have to do it, my, my intellect, my intelligence, I'm the one that has to pull off the ministry of the church. That's, that's an erroneous view. Now, that may work in business, and it may work at home when you've got to cut the grass. Uh, but in the church, it's the Holy Spirit that does this. And we, we participate in the very being of the Holy Spirit in exercising these gifts. We also saw that, uh, as Paul says, that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. That we are drawn into the very reality of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. That we recognize Christ as Lord. That our redemption is given in the work of Christ by the very being of God and God's own self. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at it like we know God by God. We recognize God because God works through us. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we should trust that. We should believe in that. We should realize that though we are all sort of frail at times, filled with our own sort of doubts and maybe limitations, but in that we can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are participating in the life of the triune God because it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to do that. In, another, in, in a similar sense, remember I mentioned in, in uh, uh, Romans chapter 8 that we don't even know how to pray. Our thoughts, our lives, our feelings are so limited. How then can we pray? Well, God gives us the Spirit who intercedes on our behalf, who comes into our, 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 our deepest self, that self about us that we can't fully understand, and knows us even better than we know ourselves, and petitions on our behalf uh, to God. Remember, I made this little distinction, and I think these kind of distinctions are very revealing. You know, we don't pray to God. We pray in God. Because the Holy Spirit comes in our spirit and interprets, intercedes on our behalf. We get caught up into the inner triune life of God whenever we pray. Well, all this is to say that the scriptures definitely give tremendous emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. From creation to redemption to the work of the church to our own intimacy with God. All this is the work of God as spirit. All right, with that said... Uh, Give me a little time I want to get to. <clears throat> Some theological reflection. This is a famous painting, again, depicting the, Holy, uh, the Trinity. 
as the Father here is holding the cross of the Son and the Spirit is in between the Father and the Son. The Spirit is seen here as the go-between God. The Spirit is what enables Christ to be born. Thanks, Ben. I had forgotten to do that. Uh, Christ to be born, but also the Spirit is the power of God that raises Christ from, from the dead and enables Christ to sit at the right hand of God. And so, uh, just as an aside, um, one time I was in a discussion with a bunch of Muslims and the very first question that was brought up was, you know, how can you uh, give images of God? Isn't it blasphemous? You know, we have a commandment not to make graven images of God, but we have these significant paintings, not only of the Son, but here of the Trinity. Is this idolatrous to do so? Is it? Are we breaking a commandment to have these very powerful paintings of the triune God? Are we doing so? Well, I don't think so. One of the primary differences between Islam and Christianity is that in Islam, God is so remote, so distant, so different, so distinct from anything that there cannot be any images of Allah without it being idolatrous. But in our faith, though, God has become amongst us. In fact, God was born just like we were born, human just as we are human. We know the face of God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit working here to communicate the presence of God the Father and the Son in our own hearts then is a very natural, real thing. At the heart of our faith is not that we leave human creation, human affairs, life itself, to find God in some utterly transcendent realm. Rather, God finds us in our realm. And so I think it is permissible. We've got to be very careful, uh, but it is permissible, I think, to have religious paintings of God. It's like the difference between an idol and an icon. Uh, if you've ever been to an Orthodox church uh, of, of any variety, Russian, Syrian, Greek, just filled with icons, and they're very revered. In fact, there's some very, very famous icons that people have you know, pilgrimages to go see and to touch and even to kiss. You ever been to a, um, a, a, an Orthodox church and they pass an icon around and everybody's kissing it? You've got to wonder about <laughs> some of the hygiene on that. But they get caught up into the significance of here we are, we're in the presence not that the object itself has sort of divine power. Now that would be idolatrous. But the painting, the icon, presents, it, 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 it exposes, it's a conduit of the presence of God. And that is consistent, I think, then with our faith. All right, in the Old Testament, the Spirit is called holy, Gadash, holy Ruach. And only God is called holy. Hence, to call the Spirit holy is to attribute to it divine status. Not just that it's a relationship or just an idea or an emotion, but it's the very presence of God. Come in, come in. It's the very presence of God. And so I mentioned here Isaiah 63.10, but they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Psalm 51.11, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. It's not just don't take your spirit or just don't grieve the Spirit. It's a holy. It's the presence of the divine. Now, in the New Testament, uh, you know, a lot of people think that the doctrine of the Trinity is not necessary. In fact, one of the great theologians in the church, and I'll say he had much, much, much to offer, and we should study him, and that's a guy named Schleimacher, who was a 19th century, I mean, 18th century, 19th century German theologian out of Berlin. I'm sorry. 19, yeah, 1800s. Yeah, 
began in the 18th, I mean, 19th, uh, 17th, ended in the 18th. Be that as it may, 18th and 19th. Um, he um, felt like the doctrine of the Trinity was sort of just an appendix to Christian belief. It wasn't central. And part of it is that this very elaborate doctrine we have as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not central to the Scripture's claim. Well, I, I, I beg to differ pretty radically with that. I don't think we can really understand the Scriptures without understanding God as triune. That even the Holy Spirit is considered God. Even the Son is considered divine. So we have God the Father, definitely testified in Scripture. But we also have God the Son, and we have God the Spirit. How then can we think of this? The church over these many centuries has used its best thinking to try to think of this relationship. All this, though, is to be faithful to the experience of God. You know, the, the, our, Christian, theology just doesn't, it, Christian theology doesn't start off with speculation. That is, I wonder what God's like. Let's come up with the most consistent, coherent idea. Rather, it starts with an experience, with an encounter, or to use the theological term, a revelation. Well, in Scripture, we find God revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's that very famous baptismal formula, of which I was baptized, I suspect you were baptized, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This comes from Christ, Matthew 28. There's also this well-known, widely used benediction. It's in the Book of Common Prayer at the end of 2 Corinthians 13.4. Now may the grace of Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. The Spirit is included in that, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Here the Apostle Paul, in giving this benediction, this blessed word, that's what benediction means, this blessing upon his people, it is in the state of the triune God that we receive this blessing. And then when Paul talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about that the spirits come from the same, the gifts I mean, come from the same Spirit, that come from the same Lord and the same God. And here, where Paul is talking about what really energizes, what edifies the church, it, it is the triune activity of God that does that. Same Spirit that works in you, works in me. The same Lord that draws us all together. The same God that sent, that, uh, sent the Lord and sent the Spirit into our hearts. It's a triune designation. Now, a lot of people also argued, and this was part of what the Pneumachians argued, is that the Holy Spirit is always depicted in an inferior position, hence not of the same divine status as Father and Son. That whenever you look at the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is always doing the work of the Father and the Son, hence must be in nature inferior to the Father and Son. But look at this. The baptismal formula, Father, Son, and Spirit. The benediction, Son, Father, Spirit. The description of the gifts, Spirit, Son, Father. They're all intertwined. There's not a sense of who's superior and who's inferior, at least in the Apostles' designation of this. There's no sense that, well, the Holy Spirit was a lesser deity than the Father and the Spirit. Whenever they were thinking through the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, it was all intertwined. You couldn't separate them. It's not that one is over the other, but they are all one in the act and the reality of God. Now, there's some other New Testament passages that I think are definitely Trinitarian. Uh, when, when Peter tries to describe what happens at Pentecost, he refers to Father and Son with the Spirit. He gives a blessing to the exiles. I'm going to move through these because I really want to look at the last one. Uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when Paul is describing 
the work of God. He talks about the God the Father choosing, the Spirit sanctifying, and uh, Christ glorifying those whom God has called. And in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, that is, our salvation comes through Christ in the Spirit by the work of the Father. But I want to look in particular at Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Great depiction of the triune God bringing about the unity inside the church. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, one spirit, one Lord, one Father, one faith, one baptism, one church. Um, this may be more than what you paid for, but uh, I, probably in the last, what, two and a half decades of my life, uh, and that is getting a shorter time period for me, but uh, I have tried to see myself less as a member of a particular denomination and more of a member of the worldwide church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And I've been fortunate to see the presence of the church in all the different forms around the world. And that has just, in fact, reinforced my idea that even though there may be tremendous differences among the various denominations from, you know, believer's baptism to infant baptism to a, 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 a bishop over the churches to the autonomy of the local congregation uh, where there may be differences in interpretations of Scripture and so on. But in reality, though, it is one Lord, one faith, one baptism that my baptism is as legitimate and as valid as anyone else's baptism. Why? Because it was based upon me? No. Because I make it valid? Because I'm smart and good-looking? No, by no means. Why? Because it was the same Spirit. That's what makes it all. And we are brothers and sisters then with all those who profess that one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that the Spirit here draws together because that's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is a drawer-togetherer, so to speak. The go-between God. The Spirit is that which unites the Son with the Father. Does the work of the Father through the Son. The Spirit is one that draws us to Christ. And the Spirit is that which draws us to one another. And this, we ought to be thankful for that kind of reality. That when you and I are in harmony, even though we can be as different as the day is long on some of these issues, but when we are in harmony in one faith, one Lord, one baptism, we are in the presence of the work of God the Holy Spirit. We should trust in that and relish in it. It's not a very good uh, uh, depiction of this. It, maybe you have run across this by William Blake, the Trinity. I think it's one of the best pictures of the Trinity that I've ever come across. I know it's horrible. Um, uh, I tried really hard to make it in, uh, clearer, and I couldn't. But if, you can just go online and take a look at it if you want to. But it, it, is, it is powerful because it's an etching uh, that this picture here of seeing Christ is lying down with his arms out, the Father is holding him, and if you can make it out, the Holy Spirit is the dove above. But in looking at that, your eyes are drawn through the lines, so to speak. That Blake was gifted enough, talented enough, to be able to depict something that makes us look through it into the reality that is trying to depict. It presents to us the spiritual reality of the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
All right, so my claim is this, and I, I think I, I stand on a 2,000-year-old tradition in making this claim, is that the, the Scriptures present the Holy Spirit as divine. The, because the Holy Spirit is with God the Father and God the Son. So if we believe in God the Father, we will believe in God the Holy Spirit. If we have known the great redemptive work of Christ, we will have known the great redemptive work of the Holy Spirit. Now what I want to do is to look at some theological explanations of this. Uh, of course, this is just a very, very brief overview of these very significant thinkers. I'm, ha I'm having to pick and choose the ones I'm selecting here. But uh, the effort to try to explain the deity of the Holy Spirit uh, occurs fairly early in the life of the church. And probably, I would say, the one who sort of theologically addresses this first is the great theologian out of Alexandria of Egypt named Athanasius. If you've ever studied much of what went on behind the Council of Nicaea, of which the Nicaean Creed comes from, he is one of the major figures. He talks about, well, let me, first of all, Athanasius was combating a theological movement called Arianism. Arianism was this belief that only God is God, hence Jesus, a man, couldn't be God. He was similar to God, but not the same as God. Athanasius said, no, that's wrong. That's not what the scriptures say. This is not what we have received from the apostles. Now, you may be philosophically consistent in saying that only God is God, Christ is a man, therefore Christ can only be similar, but not similar, but not the same as God. Uh, Athanasius said, no, what we have received from the apostles is that Christ is homoousian with God the Father, of the same substance and so when this movement started that I mentioned earlier, the Pneumomachians, that those people who denied the deity of the Holy Spirit, Athanasius argued that according to the scriptures, according to what we know, that the Holy Spirit is of the same substance, homoousion, as God the Father and also God the Son. Therefore, we should be Trinitarian in our belief about the Holy Spirit. He mentions here, statement number two there, that the Holy Spirit is no less than the Son, is the self-giving of God. And here's one of the great statements out of Athanasius' description of the Holy Spirit. In Him, the gift and the giver are identical. What we get from God is God. And who God is, is what we have received from God. Now, I, I could give you, you know, a gift... Um, and it just be an object, and you may like that, and take it and do whatever you want with it. But have you received me? That's a little harder to do, that is, to give of yourself in a gift. Now, we do it with our families, hopefully. We do it with our best of friends. But do we ever do it completely? Of course not. We cannot. We're not made to do that. But the interesting thing about this is that God is made to do that. It is of the nature of God, not only to give gifts, but give God's very being in those gifts. Because we have the gifts of the Spirit. We have the fruits of the Spirit. We have the very presence of the Spirit in being Pentecostally born. And so the gift of salvation is the Savior. The gift of salvation is the Savior. And we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Athanasius makes a strong claim then that to be in the church, to be in the redemptive proclamation, sacraments, missions and education of the church then is to be in the very being of God. He goes back to that phrase that I mentioned earlier, I mean last Sunday, paraclete, this is found in the Gospel of John, that Jesus says of his church that you should wait. A paraclete will come. 
So the church waits, and we have received the paraclete. The paraclete means advocate, the one who stands beside. We have someone who is a, as, 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 as Athanasius says, a vicarious advocate. I like that phrase, vicarious advocate. Now, are there any lawyers in the room? Oh, well, I, there goes my joke. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, with, uh, with the exception of the present lawyer here, uh, when you hire a lawyer, they are one who stands beside. But is it vicarious? Does your lawyer, has your, has your lawyer ever wept with you? You probably have been the sensitive, uh, sensitive man that you are. Uh, has, the, has the lawyer ever just went in great grief with you? But they stand beside. Well, we have someone who comes and advocates for us, who defends us, but who also does it vicariously, who grieves with us. This is why the, the Holy Spirit is called person, not just an object, but a person. Not just a power, but something that has the capacity to grieve. Remember, we looked at this earlier. In fact, I read from Isaiah 63. Grieved the Holy Spirit. Well, tables don't grieve. Chairs don't grieve. Stars don't grieve. Who grieves? People do. What has an emotional center? Something that has intentionality. Something that can be open to be affected. That can be in reciprocal relationships. Well, when the scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit grieving, it's talking about the Holy Spirit being person. Well, here Athanasius says, we have one who is there to defend us, who encourages us, who, who informs us of Christ, who protects us, but does it as a person would, vicariously, sharing grief and compassion with us as well. Then Athanasius says that the Holy Spirit is this indwelling spirit, that it's not just something that happens above us. God is above, but in that God is spirit, it also happens in us as well. Again, this is one of those really sort of stretched notions. To think theologically, you really have to kind of allow terms to go as far as they can go and still be meaningful. But most of the time when we talk about something, we want to objectify it. It's an object that can be described, quantified. What God is not just us. God is a reality that can be described, Father, Son, and Spirit. But God can also be in as well as out. God can be transcendent and imminent. God can be a creator as well as a creature within that creation. God can be above, but God can be very, very intimate at the same time. And this works because of the reality and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So the Spirit here is an indwelling Spirit. Have we done justice to this? Do we really fully appreciate and recognize the indwelling presence of God in our life through the work of the Holy Spirit? Uh, well, the next great theologian that addressed that issue was Basil of Caesarea. When you went to Turkey, did you go to Cappadocia? All right, this is where he was. He eventually became bishop at Constantinople. Uh, but he was from that region uh, called Cappadocia in Turkey. And even though Athanasius talked about the Holy Spirit, but it was in passing, Basil, as far as I know, writes the first systematic book on the Holy Spirit there in 379 called On the Holy Spirit. And even today, it's considered a classic. And I had already mentioned that he had opposed that, that particular group that denied the deity of the Holy Spirit. Well, what he starts off with is that God 
created us all to desire the truth, what he called hunting for the truth. Within us is the longing to know more than just our own lives, our present and immediate circumstances. We all long to know God, the creator of all things. It is natural for us to do that. However, though, we are all limited in intellect, we're limited in our own failures, we're limited by our sin. So to fulfill our lives, we have to depend on the Holy Spirit. I have a longing that I cannot satisfy on my own. I have a desire that I cannot complete by my own capacities. So to complete my life, to fulfill what I'm really designed to do, I must rely upon the Holy Spirit to do so. So what Basil argued is that the Spirit enlightens us turns on the light. The, the Holy Spirit informs us of that which we need and desire. Even though I know I need it, I don't know exactly what it is and how to do it. So here, the Holy Spirit comes into my life and enables me, enables me to fulfill that which I have to have in order to complete myself, to have that sense of fulfillment and purpose as a human being. So the work of the Holy Spirit in this sense is an, an enlightenment. Uh, let me step off to the side here for a second. Um, any of you have an introduction to philosophy class at any time or another? Okay. Uh, do you remember that very famous sort of chapter in the middle of Plato's book called The Republic, called The Allegory of the Cave? Any of you ever read that, The Allegory of the Cave? Well, you should have. I'm going to go back and talk to your dean and um, maybe revoke your degree for not studying Plato when, wherever you went to college. Well, in the allegory of the cave, Plato argues that, frankly, most of us only know shadows of realities. We don't know realities themselves. Passing images, changes, nothing is permanent in most of our life. If it's going to be true, it's got to be permanent. And so we will turn away from just images and beliefs and look outside the cave, according to Plato, and we see the source of all light, and that's the sun. The sun then becomes that which illuminates enlightens us so that we can see reality for what it is. Behind Basil is that kind of philosophical notion that the light here enlightens us so that we can see what we are designed and wanting to see. There's that famous verse in Psalm 36. In fact, Basil even mentions it. In his light we see light. It's not only that the Holy Spirit enables us to see, the Holy Spirit is that which we see. This, that which is, I'm going to try to turn these words here, that which is son is what sees. That which is the object of our sight is the power of that sight itself. We come to God because God has enabled us to come to God. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing for us. He enlightens us. So for us to really fulfill our, our most profound capacity as humans, and that is to desire beauty, desire truth, to desire God, then we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to do so. Now, his main Trinitarian principle, this is state, statement number four up here, is that equality of honor implies equality of nature. Now, what he's meaning by that is that we worship the Holy Spirit. It's in our baptismal formula. We pray in the Holy Spirit. We recognize the gift of the Holy Spirit. We know that we are born by the work of the Spirit at Pentecost. So that which is honored, that which is glorified, that which is adored, also has equal nature with God the Father and God the Son. The very practice of the church is dependent upon its recognition 
of the deity of the Holy Spirit. We worship the Holy Spirit, which means then that the Holy Spirit must be of the same nature as the Father and the Son. Now, again, this is a criticism against the Pneumomachians who denied the deity of the Holy Spirit, saying that the Holy Spirit is presented as always in inferior position. That's a complete misunderstanding of the work of the Holy Spirit to say that. One of the famous statements that Basil came up with is that the Spirit hides behind the cross. Hides behind the cross. You know, we, we have Christ, obviously, being human, has a face. Christ presents the reality of the Father. But there's not a lot of description of, of, of ob objectivity to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know who the Son was. If we were there, we could have seen the Son. We know in the, Father, I mean, in the Son that we have God the Father. But how can you describe the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, as Basil said, he draws us to God. The Spirit comes within our spirit and draws us into the reality of the triune God. In a sense, the, the Spirit hides behind the cross. I, I could be wrong. This is what Basil says. I think he's right. I've never run across anything that could be interpreted differently. That you're not going to find any description of the Holy Spirit without defining the Holy Spirit as working to do something. It's the Holy Spirit... It is the of Christ, it is of the Father, it is sent by the Father, it is the work of the Spirit drawing us to God. We know the Holy Spirit in the activity of the Holy Spirit. So when he says that the Holy Spirit hides behind the cross, what he is talking about is that the power that draws us to Christ is the power of the Spirit. So for us to... Um, now, I actually went online and I found one. I forgot to put it in a picture of a church called the Church of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I think that's perfectly permissible, just like you could have a church called Corpus Christi. I think that's a great name. Um, or like Advent, referring to the first coming of Christ and second coming of Christ. Those are great, powerful theological terms. But we don't technically worship the Holy Spirit. We worship the Son. We glorify the Father's work through the Son. But technically, we worship in the Holy Spirit. We worship because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. It could be, in a sense, maybe even sort of a heresy to try to divide the Holy Spirit away from God the Father and God the Son. Because the Spirit hides behind the cross, draws us to the relationship of the Father and the Son. To separate the Spirit and to worship the Spirit as distinct from those is probably close to close to heresy to do so. Now, of course, there have been a lot of denominations that have sort of spun off into just worshiping you know, their spirit, a spirit, or something. In fact, uh, I'll give you an illustration of this. Um, the book of Revelation that you know, is part of our canon, uh, treasured as part of the New Testament, and rightly so, wasn't all accepted. I mean, not all churches accepted the book of Revelation before it was finally canonized at the Council of Hippo in 396. And the reason why is that it was misused by many groups who felt like they were the fulfillment of what was prophesied in the book of Revelation, especially there in Alexandria. There were a lot of sort of free-floating spiritual movements going on in Alexandria at that time. And they used the book of Revelation to justify that they were the Holy Spirit, that they were the promised paraclete 
that they felt that because of what they were, their specialness, their purity, their ecstatic experiences, their mystical insights, that they had now become the Holy Spirit. No one becomes the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit draws us to Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so they were separating the Spirit from the triune God. And the church there at Alexandria felt like one way that they could curb that sort of overly spiritual enthusiasm was to not recommend reading the book of Revelation. Now, they were wrong in doing that. And it wasn't left up to them to make that decision, by the way. It was a church, it was a worldwide church decision to do that. And the book of Revelation always shows up in all the definitive authoritarian list of what constitutes the canon of the New Testament. But my point being is that um, we worship the Holy Spirit because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is theologically incorrect to think we can separate the Holy Spirit because the work of the Holy Spirit is to draw us to the Son. So if you know the Spirit, you know the Son. If you are in the Spirit, you are drawn into the relationship of the Father's Son. I think they had a very strong sense of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, They call the Spirit holy. And only God is holy. And if they would call it holy, they must be meaning it to be God. Uh, yeah. So the New Testament doesn't invent an idea with this. In fact, I would argue that the doctrine of the Trinity is not necessarily invented by the church. It is a continuation of the revelation of God starting in the Old Testament. All right. He also mentions here that the crown of the righteous man is precisely the grace of the Spirit. Your growth in righteousness and the deeds, the fruits of the Spirit, is the grace of the Spirit in your life. And we should trust that. Now, not to be arrogant, not to draw attention to ourselves. Look how great I am because I can be long-suffering, patient, tender, and all that. No, it's the work of the Spirit. In drawing attention to who we are, we are actually, just like that Blake painting of the Trinity, trying to go through us into the presence of the Spirit. So, it's never... It, it, that is, one can be filled with the Spirit, but one can never draw attention to oneself. In being filled with the Spirit, what one draws attention to is the presence of the Spirit in one's life. We should become transparent of that. Uh, six, Spirit-bearing souls illumined by Him finally become spiritual themselves, and their grace is sent forth to others. Do we believe that? Do we, uh, do we trust that? Um, it's difficult, and we have to be very careful about that. That is, I, Dennis Sansom, I'm not a healer. I am not the grace in anybody's life. I bring my own life, I bring my own assets, but I am not in any way redemptive in anyone's life. However, though, because the Holy Spirit works in our life, I can become a means of the work of the Spirit in other people's life. And we must trust that. We always must be on guard for our own vanity, but we must believe that the Holy Spirit is working through our lives to touch graciously, gracefully, other people's life as well. That we get caught up in the very reality of God in giving grace to other people. You know, one way that we define sacrament is it's a means of grace. And traditionally, of course, Roman Catholicism, there, there are seven sacraments. Uh, sort of, I guess, maybe traditional Episcopal Church. They have four or five, four sacraments. 
probably most of you exercise two of those, baptism and communion. Uh, we see those as special. The presence of God there is known uniquely in baptism and in the Eucharist and the communion service. Those are called means of grace. Now, you're not saved just because you eat and drink in the communion. You're not saved just because water has been sprinkled on you or been immersed. That act in itself doesn't save me, but they are means of grace only because the Holy Spirit can work through those elements. That's, that's the point. Well, we can be a sacramental presence, I think, to other people and giving them grace and showing them the love of God and giving them the hope of redemption through our own lives, their own involvement with them, then we too become sort of sacraments. That is the means of grace. Just as Basil says here, their grace is sent forth to others. Seven, the Holy Spirit works within the purified soul, giving it the ability to see. This is that enlightenment metaphor again, that we can see, discern, judge by the work of the Holy Spirit. Just two more things here about Basil. Uh, the Spirit is the Spirit of knowledge. This is what fulfills our quest to know truth, beauty, and God. That the Spirit works in us to inform us. That in a sense, to use sort of a psychological concept, the Spirit is the cognitive operation of God. That is, I'm communicating to you, hopefully. I'm uttering sentences, hopefully they're meaningful. Something is relayed out of my own life into your life by the power of communication. And hopefully there's knowledge in all this. Without word, without communication, there wouldn't be knowledge. Without the work of the Holy Spirit coming into our life, not only giving us what to know, and here, here's once again the gift and the giver of the identical, but giving us the means to know what we should know. We get caught up into the life of God and our knowledge of God. And, and I, I guess we should trust that. We should relish that. We should see it as something unique without sort of parallel in the rest of our lives. Nine, we confess that we know what is knowable of God, yet that what we know reaches beyond our comprehension. This, in my opinion, is one of the most profound theological principles we can ever, ever affirm. We do know God. God has revealed who God is. You wouldn't know anything about me. That is, you may know just how I look, but me as a person, unless I told you about me, showed you who I was, and vice versa. And the same thing with God. We do know God. God has revealed us. God has revealed to us God's very life. This is at the heart of Christianity. That God has found us in the revelation of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. But in finding God, in knowing that which God has revealed us to know, we know that God is even beyond anything that we can comprehend. Uh, I'm going to make a little subtle distinction here. This is not original. I, I, I wish I could be so bright. This actually comes from St. Augustine. Uh, he makes a distinction between being curious and being studious. Most of the time we interchange those words, but there's a very important difference between being curious and being studious. Curiosity, you know, killed the cat. Uh, the cat wants to know something and wants to completely grasp it, wants to fully know what it's dealing with. And so it tries to overcome its ignorance. Ignorance is always a threat to curiosity. If you're curious, you can't quite figure it out, and so you're sort of obsessed in completely describing it, quantifying it, measuring it, 
giving some explanation for it. That's curiosity. Uh, like I teach a logic course, uh, and I'm always saying you should be curious about this problem. That is, you need to figure out this problem. By the end of this, there should be no doubt. You're no longer ignorant about solving this logical problem. Like mathematics, or maybe if you're a historian. That is, ignorance here is a problem. It's an obstacle that we overcome. But being studious, though, is different. If you're studious, your object is knowledge itself, not the uh, end of ignorance, but constantly studying, constantly gra gazing on something.